0: Story and all the historical pieces that got us to this place where now suddenly almonds are perceived as, alongside many other kind of contemporary superfoods, something that can enable limitlessness. It's a shift towards thinking about health not in a way that's protecting one against disease, but about something that's enhancing or enabling productivity at infinitum. I think at times I felt fearful that people would perceive me as sort of like the almond person. (laughs) And and I don't really see myself as studying almonds. I mean, I am. Almonds are the object, but they're not really. I mean, I'm trying to grapple with the political ecology of industrial agriculture, and almonds are this fascinating window (laughs) into that world. in meanings around almonds, whether it was to encourage people to find them to be nutritious or to eat them year round or to use them as a protective food, that, that those are just as necessary as synthetic fertilizer to the industry that we see today.
1: the Three Ecologies podcast. One aspect of this project is to understand the present ecological crises beyond the symptoms of carbon levels in the atmosphere and the extinction of species. Once we look deeper than these inconvenient truths, a more general crisis in the government of behavior becomes visible. In today's episode, we talk about almonds, and how the almond industry has had to invent again and again new meanings and identities in order to avert the crises of overproduction. In recent years, almonds have not only gained notoriety as so-called nutritional powerhouses or superfoods, but have been scrutinized for their water usage in association with droughts, particularly in California. So in today's episode, with the almond as our companion, we explore the connections between the crises of neoliberal subjectivity and the environmental crises of droughts and the economic crises of overproduction. We speak to Emily Reisman, assistant professor at the Department of Environment and Sustainability at the University at Buffalo.
2: So, one of the things that I think is a good way to start out with this is just by asking, how did you get into researching almonds in the first place?
0: Hmm. Well, it happened when I was sort of in the midst of a major pivot in my graduate student career, which is probably more detail than I need to get into. but. I was, for a number of reasons, sort of disenchanted with previous projects I had been involved in and trying to understand one of the many dimensions to that was thinking about um, working internationally versus working sort of in my own backyard, so to speak. And I was living in California at the time and started thinking more seriously about work that I could do that was relevant to California. Um, And so I started to see a lot of the media that was, at the time, really focused on the drought and the role of the almond industry in the drought. And so much of what is in the paper um, about the great almond debate, sort of tracking that media, was that was my initial delving into this world to see if it was something that I felt um, compelled me into further research. It was kind of an experimental project to look at how media coverage of this particular industry at this moment um, was shaping up, and uh, that's ultimately what drew me in. So if it weren't for all those news articles about the almond industry and their sort of unique relationship to the drought and the water crisis at that moment, I, I probably wouldn't have taken notice I also recognized as I started to look into it um, in sort of a pragmatic sense that there's a lot of really great commodity studies work that has come out of California food and ag geographers Julie Guthman's work on strawberries being a key example. And of course, she's a key mentor of mine. And I realized that um, the almond industry, as powerful as it was becoming, there was really very little work on it. I kept wondering, sort of, when am I going to find this other person who's done a lot of this research on the almond industry and can speak to these really unique kind of qualities that the industry has. And I I never found them. So then on a sort of pragmatic level, I thought, well, well, I guess I have to do it. (laughs) I guess I, um, because there's just too much that's so fascinating about this particular crop and its unique dimensions. um, And it's, of course, become incredibly powerful politically, um, and, you know, reshapes the landscape uh, on a massive scale. So that's how I got into it.
2: Yeah, thanks. And just to situate that in time, this was around 2014, 2015, when there was something of a sort of moral panic, if you will, about uh, water usage and, and the drought. Is that right?
0: That's correct. Yeah, about 2014, 2015, which incidentally is also the same time that prices for almonds peaked. So at the same time that the drought was really intensifying concerns about water, almonds were actually were already basically approaching their peak in profitability well, maybe that's not quite accurate. They they peaked slightly later in terms of profits per acre, but the, the value of almonds per pound was just put stars in people's eyes. All, you know, farmers who were looking to potentially change crops suddenly saw that this was, you know, their their path to profitability and, and potential for the future.
2: Yeah, that's something I wanna get into a bit later on is the conversion from other sorts of crops to almond plantations. But I guess uh, it's helpful if we go back in time a bit, and one of the things I want to ask is like uh, about the origins of almonds in California, so sort of when was it introduced um, where in the state in particular, and by whom, what kinds of settlers uh, sort of brought it
0: yeah, great question and i'm I'm working on some writing that digs more into the deep history of that um, so. Many people speculate that Spaniards brought almonds with them. And um, part of my research I also did in Spain. I don't know if it's clear from the papers that you read, but it's actually a comparative project. So I look at almond production in both California and Spain. And when I was in Spain, and particularly in Mallorca, there's a famous uh, colonizer, Junipero Serra, who was part of the Catholic missions that came to um, establish... Spanish control over Southern California, coming up from Mexico, um, and establishing the sort of missions as we see them today. And they likely brought almonds because Mallorca is a really prevalent almond-producing region of Spain. Uh, And so when I talked with people there, they were very sort of proud of the connection of Junipero Serra and that he probably brought almonds with him. And they were just very confident that um, that was the origin of almonds in California, um, although now uh, the California almond industry has overshadowed Spain and they're sort of um, living in the sort of ramifications of their own colonial exploration in a way. Um, but I'll qualify all of that by saying that there wasn't really large-scale almond production. There really wasn't large-scale agriculture with Spanish colonial settlement in California. It stayed at a fairly Localized level, in which indigenous peoples were brought into the missions um, and you know engaged in forced labor, um, but it was never on a sort of uh, scale at which it was intended to be for sale on a global market. it was really just to sustain the missions uh, and with all sorts of failures um, and ca- cases of starvation and all those kinds of things and it really wasn't until the sort of Anglo settlement move after California became a U.S. state, um, and which was, of course, coinciding with the gold rush. Um, and so gold rush is 1849, or well, the gold was found in 1848. The 49ers are all the people who came in the wake of that discovery to get in on the gold rush. And agriculture became this really important way for people who had quickly gained a lot of capital through these extractive industries to literally put it into the land in order to increase their profits. And so um, the origins of California agriculture are often highlighted in contrast to a lot of the rest of the United States or other settler colonial um, regions of the world, because rather than sort of starting out with settler farmers who were subsistence oriented, it was really capitalist from the get-go. It was about um, using that surplus capital that either came directly from the mining industry or from piggyback industries, you know, the ones who were selling the shovels rather than the ones who were actually taking the gold out. Um, all of that rapid accumulation of wealth had to go somewhere. And so land and agriculture became a really attractive place to put it. And so, um, there were um, a couple of really prominent um, agro capitalists in the late 1860s that started growing almonds, and it's believed that they were growing French varieties. Um, so the Spanish connection may have, on a sort of genetic level maybe ended um, you know or sort of dwindled out with the missions. but um, these French varieties uh, importantly, had this characteristic soft shell, which later on makes, the California almond industry very competitive for other reasons. Um, so I think that answers your question. I'm sorry if that was too much detail.
2: No, it's perfect. I, I also think you know uh, people like Dick Walker talking about that like high high level of capitalization of California agriculture is really a fascinating history. But was it was it in like the 1920s for the first time that it really uh, that there was a boom in production uh, or. So-
0: a pretty steady rise. Um, 1860s and 70s, a few prominent orchardists start to grow almonds and people start to follow their neighbors and see that this is an attractive crop and that it can be profitable. Um, And so it starts to expand steadily. And it was in the 19... I don't want to sort of misquote my dates here, but... It was in the 19-teens when the sort of cooperative organization of the sector started to emerge in a regional sense, where all these smaller areas um, decided to form cooperatives in order to coordinate their marketing and try and get a better price for themselves. And once they did that, um, and particularly once they started to merge the cooperatives into one singular entity, which then became later becomes blue diamond and influences the way the almond board functions, then profitability really spiked. And so in the, in the paper, the superfood as spatial fix, I point out how, I think it was 1919 was the year right before they formed this sort of um, unified cooperative. And in 1920, the growers were receiving prices that were 50% higher than before they had formed the cooperative. So I guess the That was certainly the inflection point which accelerated the growth of the industry because they recognized that through cooperation they were going to be even more phenomenally profitable than they had been previously
2: mm. but that very cooperation and that organizational restructuring created then the new obstacle of overproduction right they,
3: they don't absolutely
1: okay. yeah. and, and at that at that point also almonds being very m- much. Sort of associated with, uh, with the holidays season, with the with the winter, with the Christmas holidays, right? That's also something that you kind of uh, explore in your in your paper. That that sort of like as 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 an effect of this phenomenal gain in in, in profitability, there comes up this limit that the almond is uh, singularly associated with this one way of consuming it, and which is more. Symbolic than it really is uh, that that it's just sort of a symbol of the of the of the Christmas season or of and and I think at some point you even mentioned that no one wanted to buy almonds anymore after January 1st and it's kind of I find it very fascinating how this how something you could look at this just as this at this small uh, sliver of history sort of almond farmers in California forming a cooperative and then uh being much more profitable and and you could think oh that but that's great right that's that's a, that's positive right um, sort of uh, left aside the questions of like what kinds of growers those were and to what extent big capital was already in there but then that seems to kick off this this domino effect of events that takes us up to today where the where, where the almond is Becomes to use kind of your language, the language that you borrow from David Harvey becomes something of an addict, <laughs> needs a needs a new fix. Um, uh, so, how is that? Do you want to do you want to take us roughly through that through that series, through that kind of iteration of the of the almond over the twentieth twentieth, and then bringing us into the twenty first century.
0: Sure. I mean, one of the things that I found so fascinating about the almond industry was the the influence of marketing. And, And I mean, marketing, not in the sort of traditional sense of getting a product to market, but advertising and cultivating a sort of new, renewed, perpetually renewed cultural perception of what almonds are and can do. And I found it really fascinating. And I bring up in the paper that when the almond industry first experienced overproduction, sometimes we think of overproduction as a recent thing, like that it came with the green revolution and that it came with synthetic fertilizers and irrigation and all these things. But when almonds were completely non-irrigated, they might have sort of thrown a few buckets of water on when they planted it. But other than that, the the tree was practically self-sufficient with its own root structure. So practically non-irrigated, no systematic fertilizer and certainly it would have been organic, you know, no large scale use of pesticides. They were already experiencing overproduction, that it preceded all of those things, which shocked me when I found it. I was like, wow, this is wild. And and that the barrier was, you know, often within produce, the the barrier of um, overproduction is with perishability or with fruit quality, that if you 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 produce all these peaches all at once, you have to can them or process them. And so what was so fascinating to me about almonds was that they're already sort of pre-preserved. They don't even go bad. And so the, the fact that overproduction was such a problem, despite the fact that There wasn't a a highly sort of capital intensive or input intensive industry yet. And that um, it wasn't really about how long they could feasibly, practically be stored, meant that it was really about the meanings that were associated with almonds, in addition to all the sort of material components. And so that's something that I found hadn't been as prominent in other discussions of sort of commodities and overproduction and how these systems um, of cooperative organizing, which is similar to many other commodities in California has worked. So at the time when this overproduction crisis initially struck, Almonds were not even really thought of as a food. They were sort of more of a ritualistic item. People wanted to crack them around the fireside, sort of like we think about chestnuts in, in the U.S. context. It's not, a, it's not a huge popular cultural item, but at a few times a year or right before Christmas, people might buy ch- chestnuts just for the sort of as a gift or as something that feels part of their sort of family ritual around a particular event. So to me, that sort of need to overcome, for the industry to overcome cultural associations with almonds show shows the genesis of this really significant weight that was put on marketing and influencing how people perceive almonds in order to shift the industry and and allow it to grow or pre- prevent a, a price collapse So to walk through the periodization, I might gaze at the article so I don't miss um, one of the phases, but I basically break it out into, you know, the early almond industry, people didn't necessarily perceive almonds as food, and they were tightly tied to seasonality. Um, And one of the things I think is significant about that is not not that people sort of had this cultural association with almonds associated with Christmas out of nowhere, but that it came from the temporality of farming, that farming itself has seasonality and that almonds, and to this day in Spain, there's much more of a seasonal perception around almond consumption, that it's a logical thing after they're harvested in August and September um, to consume them and, you know, manage them before the winter holidays. And so um, it, to me, reflects also that agriculture as a seasonal business, um, and that it took work for industrial agri-food businesses to de-seasonalize it from cultural practice. Um, I think sometimes it's assumed in contemporary food culture that everybody wants all foods all the time, that that's somehow sort of a natural human condition to always want every food available to you at any time of year. Um, But history teaches us otherwise. It turns out people actually really didn't want almonds at other times of year. They were actively resistant to consuming them other times of year, the same way that you probably wouldn't want to eat Christmas cookies in July. Um, So, okay, so the industry was, slowly but eventually successful at sort of um, encouraging consumers to eat almonds on other occasions, not just associated with the holidays. Um, And at the same time, um, in the World War II, post-World War II era, the industry found an ally in the growing interest around nutrition science, which was coming from the government, um, and interest in sort of the national body and how to strengthen soldiers and also all of the other members of uh, the national body in order to prepare them for um, a sort of geopolitical competition of war. And so part of that um, interest in nutrition science came from the industry sort of pragmatically saying, oh, well, you know, those who are in these positions of power at the U.S. government are really taking a new scientific sort of managerial or um, sort of quantitative approach to the way they value food. And so they went about... um, finding a consultant in this consulting company that would provide them these metrics that were now very valuable and sort of a currency within um, agri-food governance. And so it's interesting that at that time, and I don't remember if I mentioned it in the article, but fat was a considered a really good thing. So fat was considered something that made a food substantive and valuable and strengthening. And so Almonds were given, you know, a thumbs up for having a significant quantity of fat, um, which later the industry has to sort of scramble to like rewrite people's thinking about what that means. Um, So they were associated with, um, you know, positive nutritional qualities. And because of that, they, uh, the almond board and the almond board was sort of in its Early stages at that point, but was successful at establishing almonds as an essential food, which is a designation which now kind of resonates with our current COVID moment now that I think about it. Um,
2: I was just going to say that, like, (laughs) uh, now when we think of essential food, it's often about shortage and underproduction. Uh, particularly when it comes to like uh, meat in the United States and trump uh, talking about invoking the defense production act in order to keep slaughterhouses running whereas uh, back in 1940s 50s uh, the idea of the essential food is invoked uh, kind of to, to avert a crisis of, of overproduction by including you know chocolate or uh, almonds with the uh, packets for soldiers and uh, for school children and and so on. Right.
0: And I don't I don't know if the overproduction part was conscious in the part of regulators and the way that they framed it. I think they intended it to be sort of, oh, this is what, you know, human bodies need. And we're going to privilege certain industries that we think are crucial to survival. And that certainly resonates with the current COVID moment. You know, agri-food businesses largely have been deemed essential for being, you know, more crucial than hair salons or whatever other industries. Um, so almonds achieved this essential status, which is surprising considering that just a few decades earlier, people didn't even think of them as food or really consider eating them on any other occasion other than the holidays. Um, and in doing so they got certain privileges. Um, so they were able to, um, obtain, you know, a privileged status in terms of recruiting labor from Mexico. They were able to, um, get Fuel allocations when other industries wouldn't necessarily be able to. So, at a very material level, uh, the industry lobbied in order to keep its operations going and growing and proving their worth nutritionally, it was their path for doing so. So, they achieved that essential food status by sort of legitimizing themselves through nutrition standards, Um, but it very much had a political outcome in terms of their capacity to to keep things rolling when other industries were very much constrained by the conditions of war. So so there was that phase, um, the sort of post-World War II, scientization is often a term associated with that, sort of turn towards nutrition and a general shift in thinking about authority over the domestic sphere, going away from sort of History or family or feminized um, forms of labor and towards uh, a masculinized domain of of science and authority is coming from outside of the home. So I think that it's very much in line with that trend. Um, and then uh, in the paper, I sort of trace that forward. Um, you know as the seasonality piece um, starts to be overcome gradually in the 60s and 70s, there's more interest in health. And so um, the industry, you know, recognizes overproduction is persistently a problem. And so they jump onto the health bandwagon and, um, you know, position themselves as a healthy food. Um, And then... There's also I remember
1: the yeah. I remember the heart health being quite an essential part to that. Like health. So in this first phase of health, right? The the health is more seen as sort of uh, preventing certain diseases or foods that could help you to mitigate uh, other negative effects. And that the almond then and I think you you I, I really enjoyed how you wrote about sort of the efforts that the almond industry had to go through or the almond board, the, the, uh, the organizations had to go through in order to like, uh, uh, seize this, 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 this icon, this label for from the national heart health organization or whatever. And that, that was quite a back and forth. And I think that's oftentimes what we, what we don't see as consumers is if something has a certain label that might even be a government, uh, agency label or whatever, that there is a lot of negotiation that goes into that label making it onto certain products, and that 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 these powerful organizations can can sit across the table from government organizations and can say, okay, what's your problem? Okay, we'll we'll provide you the information, and then they go back to their science teams and try to sort of make sure that that it's that it's registered as good for your heart.
0: Right, absolutely. So preventative health was very much the framing in the sort of late 80s and 90s, um, particularly around heart disease and that American Health Association, the heart check label um, was what they were trying to achieve. And absolutely, the industry and in particular, um, I feel like I should distinguish there's two organizations that are really important in all of this marketing that's happening. One is Blue Diamond, which is the largest almond growers cooperative. And the other is the Almond Board of California, which has a really unique role as a federal marketing order, um, which uh, similar organizations exist for strawberries or milk or citrus. Um, But it basically um, is a government mandated set of practices. So the Almond Board can control the kinds of production practices potentially, or marketing that happens of almonds. And they take an assessment which is basically a tax on growers per pound of production. So for every, right now, for every pound of almonds that's grown, three pennies goes to the almond board. And for a long time, that money was used just for the functioning of the almond board. And it allowed the almond board to do certain things to make sure that prices didn't collapse. One of which was hold on to some stores of almonds year to year so that they could kind of smooth out the supply. but they weren't allowed actually to fund advertising at all. Like previous to the 1970s, um, some of the activities I described that the Almond Board actually engaged in weren't necessarily advertising, like investing in nutrition research was not considered explicitly advertising. Um, Blue Diamond as a cooperative could advertise as much as they want, but the Almond Board was actually prohibited from doing so until the 1970s when the almond industry, as well as... um, Walnuts, I believe, and some other commodity organizations realized overproduction was chronically a problem. The U.S. dollar was also causing them problems. And so they lobbied in order to be able to use all of this money on advertising. And it shifted dramatically. It was something like, you know, 2% of their budget or that's not an accurate number. Some very small percentage was used on research related um, things that might be construed as sort of marketing related, and then suddenly it shifts to over 90% of their budget goes that direction. And now it's not quite 90, but it's a massive budget. So. Suddenly, there's this huge pot of money that opens up in the 70s um, that enables the almond industry to take on this role as an advertiser extraordinaire in ways that just hadn't previously been possible. Um, Just before the heart check, what happened in the 1980s right before that, because the farm crisis was going on and... um, there was sort of greater empathy and potentially visibility for farmers amongst the broader American public. And one of my favorite sort of bizarre pieces of the story is the advertisements that Blue Diamond, which is the cooperative, put out at that time, which show almond growers literally up to their elbows in almonds, begging customers to eat a can a week out of a sort of Form of civic duty, like that. That so before health even really took off, it was sort of part of their messaging, but it it wasn't quite their focus. There was a sense of responsibility to take care of farmers by eating a can a week. A can a week is all we ask was their advertising slogan, and some folks um, might still remember that. Who were around those days It was apparently quite popular and. Almond farmers were suddenly invited onto talk shows and all sorts of things. It became sort of viral for its day um, in terms of an advertising scheme. And to me, that's just like the most stark illustration of overproduction as the genesis of these, you know, marketing endeavors. So after the eighties, civic duty approach shifts towards the preventative health approach, um, seeking almonds as a sort of protective food. Um, And what's distinctive, I think, um, at the time, maybe that was sort of an assumption about that's just what a healthy food means. A healthy food protects you from potential illnesses like um, diabetes or heart disease. But as we see in the shift, the more recent shift towards what I call the sort of broader superfood status, even if a food isn't necessarily labeled as a superfood, it's a shift towards thinking about health, not in a way that's protecting one against disease, but about something that's enhancing or enabling productivity um, at infinitum. Like that there's, there's, it's not um, a sort of doctor's recommended dose that enables you to achieve a given effect, but instead this notion that any amount of this food that has a certain a uh, glow around it for being designated a superfood is inherently beneficial. It has almost kind of magical qualities to enhance your life. Um, and so that's what um, ultimately drove this article was thinking about what are all the backs, what's all the backstory and all the historical pieces that got us to this place where now suddenly almonds are perceived as, uh, you know, alongside many other kind of contemporary superfoods, something that can enable limitlessness. Um, and I think that that happens in a particularly gendered way, as I point out in the article, that it's really most often representations of women who are able to um, please men in their lives by finding the remote or or wowing their children. There's another um, marketing campaign by the almond industry that shows a, a mother who, you know, Her children are bored with sweeping and chores, and then she has a few almonds and she's suddenly inspired, and then they turn it into a hockey game. So, many of these very gendered images of what productivity means um, come through in these advertisements. And when I interviewed um, marketers about that, and I tried to get at sort of what are, you know, are, are these explicitly aimed at women, or how do you think about gender when you're, you know, crafting advertisements? And the response that I got was, well, you know, we don't our, – our advertisements are neutral. They're not intended to be targeted towards a particular gender. However, we do market research, and the research shows that more women consume our products. And so we take that into account when we think about how we advertise. So it's an interesting – I think maybe people feel sensitive to the fact that they don't want to be sort of pegged as um, – biased in the way that they're advertising towards a particular gender, racial, socioeconomic group, but the act of advertising is breaking people down into gendered, racialized, socioeconomic-aged categories in order to more specifically target them for advertising.
2: yeah. I mean, one of the quite strange things about this new wave of advertising campaigns, which you point out kind of kicks off around this time of 2014, 2015, again, is that it's sort of suggesting that, uh, and in some ways it's, it's a, uh, a bit of a return to the 1940s, 1950s notion of vitality. But instead of talking about the national body, it's really the sort of like Entrepreneurial body of the sort of young person, in particular, young woman, office worker, mother, etc., and and it's going. The almond is going to provide her with boundless energy, sort of in order to do relatively mundane tasks. And so it's this strange contradiction.
0: Yeah, and perhaps the um, maybe obvious distinction there is that. The national body was about sort of collective well-being and the superfood phenomenon is really an individualist kind of neoliberal approach, which is all about how my actions and choices as an individual will uh, improve my own life um, rather than a sort of aiming towards a, a collective goal or collective good. But I think you're right in pointing out the similarities that they similarly resonate with ideas of productivity and strength and sort of capacity. Um, absolutely.
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of the really interesting things that you wrote, which also uh, Lucas will recognize because it's it's resonated with some of the conversations we've had around chia seeds, um, mm-hmm. is the following where you where you said the superfood phenomenon is part of a broader counterculture critique of industrial food systems emphasizing whole foods and, to a lesser extent, intergenerational culinary wisdom. Yet it is also a powerful advertising tool eagerly adopted by food marketers. This dualism is less a contradiction than the norm. Even more importantly, the superfood concept would not be possible without extensive single food scientific research overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, funded by industry groups. So uh, something that we, we have previously talked about with chia seeds is that uh, they employ, the, the marketers and the producers employ what, what Felix Guzzari called mixed semiotics, where on the one hand, you have the statistics around chia seeds in terms of the nutritional facts and so on. While on the other hand, it's referring to it being this um, ancient food of Inca warriors and balancing those two things on the one hand. And I think very much it's very much similar with almonds, whereby all of the statistics about uh, protein count and uh, good fats and so on and so forth only work with uh, by balancing it with an idea of some sort of uh, wisdom uh, of of previous generations knowing knowing what was good for us we 've gone astray from that, but now we 're going back to it um,
0: right, and absolutely the almond industry is is thrilled that whole foods are a sort of buzzword in a way that people are thinking about food because the almond almond is typically consumed as a as a whole food um, but I think that 's somewhat um serendipitous you know if they were selling. I don't know, flax or a food that happened to be a superfood, but tends to be mixed in with other things. Maybe people, you know, um, would perceive it differently. So I, I think there is so much about advertising that is opportunistic, right? You know, I'm not trying to say that the almond industry has masterminded all of these, you know, cultural shifts, but they see a change coming or in process and they try to modify the way that they position their product in order to, to generate more sales, just like any other kind of form of advertising. But what is particularly maybe puzzling or, or maybe it's just so obvious is that these, these foods, when they become... Advertising objects in ways that maybe food food is a strange object, it can't be branded in the same way that sweaters or something else could. Um, that it really demands a specific type of knowledge, which is these you know scientific knowledges. And in my research, I really looked for who's doing research on the nutritional qualities of almonds that's not funded by the almond industry? and I still haven't found anyone, and maybe they're out there. Um, but when I talked with some of the um, the folks at the Almond Board who are responsible for scientific research, they said, well, you know, it's not really in the interests often of researchers in the nutrition profession to think about a specific food. They might be interested in a particular phenomenon or a particular aspect of diet. Um, it's really up to, um, industry organizations if they want to know what the qualities are of a unique food. And that really got me thinking, you know, everything that we know about the specificities of the almond has in some way been shaped by what the almond industry put, what types of knowledge the almond industry believes will eventually lead to sales. So it's not to say that those forms of knowledge are any less true, um, but they reflect a particular type of knowledge. They reflect questions that are ultimately destined to become marketing statements. And any kind of studies that are ultimately unflattering to the industry just kind of get swept aside and receive a lot less press because they are the ones ultimately in control of who, uh, of, of what gets a press release and makes a big splash when it comes to almonds and nutrition. So I think there are similar dynamics with many other commodities and I would be very excited to, I I mean, have some colleagues who are working on similar types of research with other commodities, but I'd be very excited to see what are some of the differences. Um, But I imagine just, I would anticipate a lot of similarities in how, pardon me, um, nutrition research has played into this, this kind of dualism as you brought up about sort of, relying on ideas of naturalness or history or culture or wisdom um, at the same time as needing a certain kind of modern scientific validation.
1: I I think there's a, because that was like, thank you for that, for that entire arc of the 20th and 21st century of meanings around almonds and the almond industry but it's interesting, I find that there's almost like an analogy between the beginning point and the end point because I really love that you pointed out in the beginning that the first uh, occurrences of overproduction had nothing to do with uh, irrigation, with vast irrigation systems or with uh, artificial fertilizer or all these phenomena that we nowadays really associate with the corruption of Uh, of um, pristine agriculture or some sort of like that's when it got corrupted. And oftentimes this goes back to like the petrochemical industries post World War II or so on. And then there's kind of a nostalgia that is painted. But when you go back to, when you can go as far back as 19, the 19 teens or 1920s and can see that these sorts of, that these phenomena don't have to be highly scientific and technical in that sense, in order to be, uh, to, 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 to show these, these, uh, these same dynamics. So we don't have to have a huge petrochemical industry in order to have some of the same social phenomena, right? So in many ways, maybe some of these technical advancements, which we often blame for the corruption of our society and the corruption of our food system and so on. Um, that, um, Maybe the maybe the machine is social before it's technical, or maybe there's a kind of a, there's already a so, there is a social dynamic already in place, which gets exacerbated no no question by some of these inventions, and that's the sort of that's at the beginning, and that's such that's I think that's such an important provocation that really dispels with so many of the naive romanticisms about like how food production was back in the day, um, and and. Uh, that if you stripped yourself of that equipment, of that, of that, of just the the machines, the or the 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 technical, the highly technical, the high tech products, that then it would all be good. Um, and sort of at the very end, then there's this. What I really love about this, the your approach is sort of like how you almost create a horizontal plane of semiotics. I mean, you don't make this. It is quite implicit, but it's on the one hand saying, okay, look, this. Uh, Doing a mini genealogy of the nutrition science industrial complex or whatever, and saying, "Okay, there is a reason why uh, uh, why we have so much data on these things, and that is based on certain monetary interests." And at the same time, kind of so almost like creating a horizontal plane of semiotics where you where you have these subjective models that are being launched, whether it's the the person who cares about their heart health, or whether it's the person who's patriotic or who supports their own, uh, or the, the country that comes together to help out the farmers, these kinds of these kinds of subjective models, uh, uh, and and nutrition science isn't isn't just an entirely different thing. It kind of is almost at the same level of cultivating a certain meaning-making machine that 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 really enables an, a new a new. Uh, subjectivity and a new economy to 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 take hold, and so um, in some ways, maybe just as there is that naivete of thinking that before petrochemicals it was all fine, there is maybe a sort of uh, a hope that now with all of this science, with all of this data, we have a sort of a second enlightenment, and now we can finally rid ourselves off of these terrible advertisements of the 1950s and 1960s that are that are horribly sexist and whatever and that sort of um and 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 that maybe even maybe even some of the advertisements of today we would still see as as uh reminiscent of of that era but then you also have sort of you don't even have to go to advertisements there's plenty of like content that people seek out themselves to educate themselves on like oh what would be good for me and this sort of idea of how, how really only recently the, the industry managed to unlock this limitless, this limitless, uh, uh, in, um, benefits uh, through the superfood framing. And I was almost thinking of like how sometimes on some, even if you check the back label, sometimes you see this product contains 350% of your daily required potassium. And then you think, oh, that's great. I got three times the amount that I need. So I must be extra well off. And it's I this oh, this open-ended, this sort of you can never eat too many almonds and so on. And um, I, I really, I just wanted to kind of read one sentence that I thought was really Uh, really resonated from your paper where you said almond producers could not expand their real estate within the stomach of American consumers without simultaneously expanding the territory of almonds within the landscape of food meanings, now presenting almonds as an aid for every possible domestic and professional task. And this really thinking of like, I really like the framing of real estate there, really thinking of the semiotic Domain as just as much as real estate, just as much as infrastructure as the infrastructure of growing elements in the in the in the Central Valley in in California.
0: Well, I think you just summarized my paper better than I did. So thank you for that. Um, and, and maybe something that will be interesting to you in thinking about this is um, really my goal here in speaking to people in the Marxist tradition, looking at political economy of agriculture was to say, it's not all about the sort of materiality of overproduction, but that there is this semiotic dimension. And when I shared this paper with colleagues early on, um, it was recommended that I sort of coin the term, the semiotic fix. And they said, well, well, you know, everybody knows the term spatial fix. You can coin the term semiotic fix and show how this has played out um, and that that it would make a great title and everything like that. And I really thought hard about it. And I said, well, it's it's not separate. There isn't like a separate semiotic fix that can be detached from the materiality of overproduction. And so what I tried to do in the paper, and it it made it extra challenging for me, because I think it would have been simpler to sort of say, we all know what a material spatial fix looks like, here's what a semiotic fix looks like, but it's really that it was always both, and that all of the spatial fixes that we see, because some of the technologies, as you described, that are the corrupting forces of industrial agriculture, Those are spatial fixes in many ways. Synthetic nitrogen is a spatial fix to the limitations of plant nutrition on a given acre. Um, You know, pesticides are a spatial fix to the density and concentration required of plantation agriculture. So we're familiar with thinking about how the materiality of agriculture requires these kind of technical spatial fixes, in addition to the sort of spatial fix of, you know, in Harvey's sense of of moving things around, um, but that all of those carry semiotics within them, that within the sort of process of the intensification of almond production, which is always just trying to sort of, you know, riding the treadmill and trying to keep up with fears of declining prices, got to boost production per acre in order to stay afloat, that that intensification itself cannot survive without its semiotic counterpart that the the investment in meanings around almonds whether it was to encourage people to find them to be nutritious or to eat them year-round or to use them as a protective food um, or to enhance their sort of chutzpah or whatever the most recent iteration is um, that that those are just as necessary as synthetic fertilizer to the industry that we see today. We would, we would not know the industry, the almond industry in the way it is today without the agrochemicals that are required. And we certainly wouldn't know it without the marketing, um, and the meaning making infrastructures, which I think go beyond marketing. They have to do with scientific research. They have to do with, um, sort of broader placements of products in people's lives. Um, Almonds were like popularized as an airplane food snack. That's not necessarily an advertisement, but the industry worked very hard to get them associated with sort of affluent on the go traveler lifestyle at a time when airplane travel was still, um, you know, very much for elites. I mean, it still is today. um, but even more so. So that whole meaning making apparatus I think has just, has been a little bit downplayed in the, in the, um, historical materialist tradition in general, which really emphasizes the material and which I deeply respect and find that to be crucial. Um, But in this paper, I really tried to force meanings to be recognized (laughs) as as just as crucial um, to the the landscape transformations um, of this industry and the social transformations um, as any of the um, inputs uh, that are typically described.
2: Yeah, I would say it landed incredibly well in terms of uh, delivering all that and tying it together and, and making an incredibly cohesive piece. And I think uh, there have been enough fixes invented in geographical political economy, so I think that refining the spatial fixes in some ways is a, a very worthy um, endeavor. Um, but I think the the question of meaning making uh, allows us to to, to pivot. Um, a bit to the current crisis of meaning in almond production, or at least how, how I would perceive it as a bit of a crisis of meaning interlinked with the crisis of drought and water in California. So um, another of the pieces that we read is this one in Geo about the, the great almond debate. And there you take uh, quite an unconventional, I would say, rather unconventional sort of uh, Polanyian perspective, which you know otherwise in these disciplines is is used quite often, but by calling it a subtle dub- double movement, you're looking at the ways in which you know first of all, it's it's not always progressive political forces undertaking this this double movement, um, something Polanyi emphasized, but I think might have been lost to some extent in in later scholarship, but also that it's uh, it's not not as like inchoate it's much more dispersed it's it's people are not exactly coalescing around a particular program but are expressing a certain type of outrage about the fact that uh the state is allowing the industry to use this much water um for uh cash crops in the case of almonds 3.79 liters per nut um But what you do an interesting job of pointing out is that other crops are just as uh sort of in uh water intense, if not more so than almonds are. but it was singled out precisely at, at this time as um, this this object in a in a broader uh, cultural frame, so are, there were a lot of these articles saying... Uh, you ignorant hipsters stop with your almond milk obsession and sucking California dry and, and so on and so forth. And that gets into, you know, questions around the meaning of milk, which are beyond the scope of this. But uh, I was, one of the things I really got curious about which, which, you know, you hinted at in this article is the question of China and the, the fact that much of the recent boom, um, has been driven by increasing demand from the Chinese middle classes. Um, and yeah, I was just beginning to wonder whether you, whether you think it's possible that the part, that this double movement and this cacophony of um, newspaper articles and editorials in different outlets is in part driven by sort of geopolitical anxieties And the idea that we're here in the United States becoming something of a a resource periphery for a rising global power, Um, and that's made manifest in the drought that we experience here in California.
0: so I think that ties in really well uh, in, in one key way, which is often overlooked in some of the attention uh, to Chinese rising Chinese almond consumption is that um, Chinese consumers are eating more almonds because the almond industry is doing a really great job of advertising there. They're doing a phenomenal job. It's not an accident. It's not that people in China sort of woke up one day and said, wow, wow we always wished we could buy more almonds and finally we have the cash. Um, That's not what happened. Uh, They have received, they've been on the receiving end of a huge investment um, by the almond board to promote almond consumption. And, uh, you know, I thought at one point about trying to analyze the different, marketing tactics around the world that the almond industry uses. And my brain just was, was not capable of balancing so many things and someone else should really do that. Or maybe at a later time because they take very different approaches and different geographies, which I, I sort of hint at in the article that these are geographically culturally specific strategies that have to build on existing meaning infrastructures. And so the sort of meaning infrastructures that exist in China that would enable or encourage Chinese consumers to, eat more almonds are going to be different from the ones that are targeted at at American consumers. And that just speaks to the power of semiotics, I think. Um, But to your question about the double movement and this sort of resistance to among Californians, let's say, or maybe North Americans, U.S., Um, citizens feeling suddenly threatened by the rising consumption of the middle classes in China. This is certainly something that comes up a lot when people talk about meat and um, sort of point the finger at China or other rising uh, economies, the sort of so-called brick economies, um, for suddenly acquiring the tastes of the elites who have encouraged them in every other way to adopt similar lifestyles. So um, Okay, what do I wanna say about this? One thing that I think is really key is first of all, I don't think California has, or, or the US in general, has really factually become a resource periphery for other countries. Um, there's been some studies on um, water transfers, and I'm forgetting the exact term here, but about sort of the net you know, water imports and exports to California, And they really show that, hey, California imports way more water in the form of technological gadgets and and textiles and every other imaginable commodity that is brought into California, um, that the amount of water that, you know, is uh, exported Via the production of, of produce or other things, really pales in comparison. So, um, never to fear, <laughs> California and the U.S. is generally still on the net-consuming side of resources from other parts of the world. Um,
2: just to just to clarify, I, I didn't mean to push the idea that the United States is actually a resource periphery, but more the feeling amongst certain people that the reason for ecological crises could be that that changing balance of power in sort of uh, an ecologically unequal exchange maybe reversing itself a bit. Whether that's true or not, there's, there seems right. to be something of a perception of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What I think is really key there, and what I try and bring forward in, in pulling Polanyi um, off the shelf and trying to, to pull him into this conversation is that what I found is that what people were really concerned about is, is markets and the power that markets had over where water was going in contrast to what they sort of felt was maybe intuitive, like I should, as a resident of whatever region, have some more say or some more control over how water is allocated. But here's the global market just just, you know, riding a high of almond, um, enjoyment. And, and and suddenly, if Chinese consumers are willing to pay for almonds, then they get all our water. Like, what's that about? So I thought it was really more of a ethical probing for what potentially should be the limits on the role of the market in governing something like water, um, which is, um, you know, a fictional commodity in the Polanyian sense of not being something that's actually produced for markets. Um, and that, that's part of what makes it so contested. And one of the things I found was particularly interesting and I think genuinely unfair about the way that China was represented in a lot of these advertisements is that um, the European Union actually imports more almonds than China or I think all of the Southeast Asian countries combined. And so the concern, there's a certain way in which historic consumption patterns are rendered neutral and acceptable and perhaps there's a sort of racialized dimension there that somehow you know um, countries or populations that are within this sort of veil of whiteness are more acceptable consumers. But then when a different um, geopolitical arrangement. Uh, allows for a group that has historically not been a major consumer of a particular product to increase or change their patterns, that that's what's problematic. That the historic, you know, we could Germany is one of the largest importers of California almonds, but I never saw anybody saying, hey, Germans, like, lay off the marzipan. Like, nobody was saying that. <laughs> um,
1: We're not going to also. So... <laughs>
0: So, and so I think it was about rate of change. I think that people saw this sort of like massive increase um, in Chinese consumption. And then we thought, whoa, well, where are we headed? Um, but I think ultimately it was more about that, that speed of change, I think was tied to this market anxiety. It was about sort of a sense of loss of control. Um, and so I, I think certainly people's biases play into the way that they perceive China differently from other places. Um, but I ultimately tried to tie it into a concern over how China in some ways represents somewhat ironically, <laughs> the power of capitalism, the power of um, a- an economic engine being more forceful than um, socially determined uh, sort of acceptable forms of governance um so so china's economic power is is now overshadowing other ways of governing water and i think that that was ultimately what was most troubling
1: um what i actually found really interesting about the sort of the contrast between the two papers is because and i was saying to will just before we started recording or just before you came on that they could almost be written by a different person uh, kind of and I, and I mean that as a compliment um because I think oftentimes scholarship kind of tends to establishing its own lane of sort of performing again the same type of gesture towards different different phenomena but the interesting thing here is that the almond is kind of the linchpin, but then what or the that that ties them together but they're really they they so they start from the almond the almond is kind of the entry point but they speak about. Political contestations and of also in what I found especially uh, uh, brave in a way in the in the in the um, in the geo uh, geo forum one was the way in which you try to resist the sort of academic slam dunk on on news media and saying sort of like asserting yourself in the knowledge hierarchy and saying hey listen guys this is We're 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 spilling the truth here. You are just sort of, which I think oftentimes is a temptation. Um, And for me, that really has to do with what we kind of finished talking about with the other paper, which is this question of the semiotic and sort of saying that if there isn't, if 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 we kind of make it more of a level playing field or recognize it more as a level playing field, where all these different claims compete, where claims from Uh, uh, nutrition science aren't by sort of divine uh, uh, authority any any higher on the hierarchy than some what, what, what some people might think of as very tacky advertisement or whatever that that then within that trying to look at these look at this phase of the of the extreme drought between 2014 2016 I was actually in California at the time I was living in in Berkeley at the time, and I still remember that when that point in the paper where you wrote about that, whatever it was, some day in April, where the governor announced that that uh, certain that that new rules for sort of limiting water uh, uh, water usage at the at the sort of small level and whatever, and I still remember that because it was one of the rules that they introduced was that they did no longer you had to ask in a restaurant to be served free tap water they. No longer just brought it to you when you sat down, and that was like one of their. While leaving agriculture aside entirely, sort of saying like, "Oh, this is restaurants giving out too much tap water." That's really the. Um, so there was a lot of there was a lot of heat about that that moment in time, but then looking at the reporting uh, as you do in that article and trying because I wasn't so familiar with the Polanyian concept and so on. But what I what I got from it. Or what I understand of Palanyi from your article is that this double movement is a sort of like there is an expansion of the market and then it and then it retracts. There's a sort of a there's it stretches too far and then it and then it collapses back in or something. There's a sort of and this is not necessarily you you acknowledge food movements in in, in the important kind of counter capitalist, counter-neoliberal uh, work that they do. But it feels like what you're trying to say is that sometimes these uncoordinated not necessarily consciously trying to enact this agenda these actors uh, these dispersed actors can sort of um, channel a type of uh, a type of suspicion and a type of and, and can affect that 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 collapse of the this this stretching market to kind of contract a little bit and it was obviously left hanging. It wasn't a sort of a slam dunk in the sense that you could say, now this problem is solved. Let's move on to the next one. Um, uh, um, Because it feels like with these kinds of questions, once you acknowledge the semiotic as as something that isn't just supplementary, something that we don't just have to dispel with, something that we don't just have to debunk or, or, or sort of fact check, and this is obviously, Kind of for me, I was thinking through this paper about like the the sort of the question of truth and the question of uh, fake news or whatever is, is is this kind of these competing claims over 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 what's going on, and there is no single one that we can appeal to as this is this is an unbiased authority and so reckoning much more with the messy process where there's no pillar rising up above the whole plane and sort of being able to declare what's really going on, but then seeing, trying to see what are maybe some of the correcting forces within, within a dispersed environment of people not having the same political views to kind of say, Hey, and to kind of cultivate maybe the precursors to, to, to a more radical critique or something. Is that, is that sort of roughly what, what you were attempting to do with that?
0: I think so. I think you've put it beautifully. Um, One of the ways that I saw this article operating, uh, as you mentioned, is in some ways um, legitimating the work of journalists by refusing to see it as hype, because I think there was a certain there's a certain tendency to disregard, I mean, I think journalists, well, the respect for journalists probably varies so broadly and is a topic for a totally different conversation. But I think among um, academics and potentially people within agricultural industries, there's a certain tendency to see journalists as, you know, searching for a sensational story and then dropping it off and that we should not take them as seriously because they're not engaged in the sort of long durée of whatever problem it is that they are uh, attending to. And what I was trying to say is it may be true that journalists have by the nature of their work a sort of fleeting engagement with this problem but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have broader significance and it can't just be passed off as 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 hype as um just uh the sort of i don't know political economy of the news cycle that there's something more there that we should recognize which is not to say that journalists should be on, put on a pedestal but that their work is i think revealing some of the broader anxieties or the fact that they think it will resonate with their readers is is caused to Pay attention to what they're saying. And so um, I in looking back at Polanyi, and this was something that happened after I had, you know, tried to digest all of this information and and comb through all of these news advertisements and code them all, um, that I went back to Polanyi and I realized, oh, you know, so many people who use Polanyi are really using it to bolster the the work of social movements, which are very crucial in critiquing many of the 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 concerns we have with our current agricultural system. But I, I guess I wanted to, I don't know if democratize is the right word, but say, you know, it's not just La Via Campesina. Like other other sort of people who don't even identify themselves as critiquing markets are on some level uncomfortable, or or at least in this particular case, I won't say it represents everyone, of course not, but that journalists were sort of channeling this unease with the way that the market was operating, and that we can recognize that resistance to markets doesn't always look like a protest in the street or um, an organization that is able to come out with a cohesive statement, and that Polanyi was actually really tuned into that, and that so many of the things that he flags as indicators of a double movement, as a sort of a resistance to the an overreach or, or excessive power granted to markets are sometimes advanced by people who are advocates of market liberalization. That there's, you, you don't have to be ideologically aligned with a resistance to markets in order to feel uncomfortable with markets once they destabilize something that's very dear to you. And I think Polanyi uses the example of, you know, public funding for firehouses. Once people realized that there were too many fires in their neighborhood, it didn't mean that they were suddenly, you know, anti-capitalist. They just really wanted a fire brigade to protect their block. And I think in many ways that is what came forward in this um, very like polyphonic dialogue about what 's happening with water in California is a, a gross unease like we're we 're uncomfortable with the way that water is being managed largely I think um, most Californians are in very various ways uncomfortable with the ways water is being managed, and much of that ultimately boils down to their relationship to sort of market trends and tendencies. <laughs> So those are the things I was trying to do, sort of validate journalism as being more than hype. And also, um, as you mentioned, sort of draw attention to these more subtle and uncoordinated and not necessarily ideologically motivated forms of resistance to markets. And one thing I'll also note, um, as it's interesting to hear your reflection that the articles seemed like they were, they could have potentially been written by different people. And I, I do take it as a compliment. And one thing that I found, and I know that this is something that everyone, Sort of grapples with as they navigate their research topic um, and their academic careers is i think at times i felt fearful that people would perceive me as sort of like the almond person <laughs> and and i don't really see myself as studying almonds i mean i am almonds are the object but they are they're not really i mean i'm trying to grapple with the political ecology of industrial agriculture and almonds are this fascinating window (laughs) into that world. And so um, sometimes a charismatic object can do a lot for us um, in terms of narrative. I think that um, being able to focus on this one particular object allows me to tell a story in a different way than if I was coming at it from a more kind of abstract perspective on a pragmatic level, we all have to study something. And so you may as well kind of hone in on, on one little slice of the world around us. Um, but I never want the message from my work to be that almonds are bad or sort of inherently, um, should be, uh, shunned or boycott or anything like that. I mean, I think boycotts can be powerful tools in activism, but I'm not trying to sort of shame almonds for being different from other crops. In many ways, I'm trying to say, almonds are so much like all of the other crops that are grown. And so if we're really troubled by what's happening with almonds, we should think about how that applies across the board. Um, We should think about how that has to apply in a more systemic way. because I think that, that can sometimes be a misperception by drawing attention to one crop. It's one of the sort of vulnerabilities of doing a, um, a commodity study is that sometimes people's tendency is to say, um, oh, well then I'll just stop eating almonds to assuage my guilt and kind of move on.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, throughout this project, the sort of uh, existential crisis associated with, with particular foods and commodities is, is definitely something that we're very interested in and and but i but I wanted to like you have used the almond as a window into the world of industrial agriculture, I wanted to ask a question about how the almond has become a stand in for these sentiments around industrial agriculture more broadly and um, a lot of the journalists that you cite express their their discomfort with the march market logic of almond production, not only in terms of uh, the specific water requirements but also in t- by contrasting almond plantations with the other agricultural landscapes that they've displaced so like pastures vineyards tomato fields uh were some of the examples that i that i caught but i'm sure there have been more in different parts of california and i, I wanted to ask if um you think it has something to do with the, the fact that products like milk and wine require substantial processing uh, and that dairy, ma- dairy farmers and, and winemakers end up being associated then with hard work and, and some sort of like industrial production, whereas uh, almond farmers, I'm, I'm talking about the people who own the farms, not the farm workers, come to be seen as something of a rentier, right? They're just sitting on the land. It's, you know, the the farm workers and the weather of California are doing the work to actually produce that value. And, and they really don't have, aren't engaged in productive activity in the way that a, a winemaker, even if they're a bit distant from the immediate process of production, still they, they probably have some... Uh, experience in, in what it's like to make wine and, you know, similar things can be said about milk in other ways. And I, I was wondering if, because throughout this article on Polanyi, I was also thinking about Keynes and the whole idea of the euthanasia of the rentier and, and how in-market societies uh, rentierism comes to be seen as this u- unique evil, almost.
0: Rentierism in California agriculture is a fascinating um, line of thought, and probably goes well beyond my the scope of my study. But I will say that one element I, I don't think it played into the critique that journalists made. I, I, Perhaps. I mean, I think that there has been a critique kind of across the board that large scale agro industries in California are increasingly run by absentee owners. Um, And I think that that goes for wineries and dairies and other forms of um, commodity production as well. Um, Of course, the Resnick family is a really prominent example within California of the sort of orchard agro-capitalists, you know, a family that's um, earned their wealth from a variety of other industries and then, um, you know, invested it in agriculture and really runs it much more like a corporation than a farm um, and has the largest, um, or at least at the time, had the largest almond acreage at the time of all the journalistic writing. And so, in some ways, the Resnicks were targeted for being the symbols of that rentier capitalist. however, um I, I don't know, yeah, I, I don't know that almonds are distinct from other commodities in that sense, is I guess what I'll say. But one thing that you brought up about labor I find really intriguing, because in my conversations with a lot of folks who are, almond farmers, and farm managers, um, because farm managers, I think, are an underappreciated group within California agriculture. There are many, many people who don't own the land and are not farm workers, but who operate in this middle space where they are sort of career farm managers who manage land for multiple different uh, landowners, um, but they effectively make all of the decisions that we think that we assign to farmers, like what kinds of management practices they're going to engage, what kind of irrigation systems, things like that. So those are many of the people I interviewed in in my study. And one of the things that stood out to me is that um, almonds were favorable um, relative to other crops. These managers often are making the decision of what crops to plant. Um, So the owner of the land might not care um, much, whether it's grapes. They probably care if it's dairy or not, that sort of carries other implications, but... In terms of um, fruits and nuts, they they probably don't care much whether it's walnuts or or wine. But um, one of the things that is really attractive about almonds is that it's highly mechanized. So whereas the wine industry relies on hand harvesting, some of that is changing now and it's increasingly mechanized, but it's considered vulnerable to... um, labor as an as an input and I hate to put it so crudely that way because I think it dehumanizes it but um, almond industry is very attractive to those who are not directly engaged in the farming themselves because it's seen as sort of de-risking agriculture as an investment by reduced reliance on human labor and an increased reliance on sort of you know, petrochemical generated, um, mechanical labor, um, because almonds, um, it's really shocking in some ways how few human beings are involved. (laughs) Um, just the scale of it. I think when you witness it firsthand, if it's unfamiliar to you can be, you know, it's, probably one of the most alienating forms of agriculture relative to other crops. I mean, perhaps analogous to grains or other crops that are heavily mechanized now to where one person can manage a thousand or more acres um, without trouble, uh, almonds are very much the same way. So they're not, they're much closer to the grain industries than the so-called specialty crops like fruits and nuts and vegetables. Um, And for that reason, um, they're very attractive to investors. Um, So not only sort of absentee landowners, but also increasingly investment management funds, equity funds that are um, putting increasing um, interest in agriculture. Um, And I'm not the right person to to talk about the financialization of agriculture. There are many people who are much more knowledgeable on that. But I will say that almonds are attractive um, because of the limited uh, human labor that is required currently
1: and one of the one of the concepts that 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 i found so great was actually this which you just mentioned as a sort of a, a side note that this the, the spatial fix is actually a fix in the sense of an addict in the sense of addiction and and i was i was thinking about how this how the how the fixing of overproduction with almonds uh, in the in the mental and social uh, uh, space uh, so sort of like the spatial not just being a sort of a common sense space but also the subjective space so trying to find new space or in the stomach as well or in the mind making you think more of almonds making you think of almonds at every occasion when you're running out of steam the sort of carpet p.m. campaign and sort of like really uh, placing that idea is almost like an inception type of maneuver where you kind of go down into the psyche of someone and then like every time you, you give them all these situations where they naturally think of almonds and then of course it's backed up by science so it's good for you and all of this and it's very it's very difficult to because of course what you're not trying to do is just to dismiss the almond and say this is all a lie and the almond isn't doing what it's supposed to but you're saying this is much more complicated and and um I was just thinking that the, I love the language of addiction because it almost feels like you could read addiction sort of in both directions. You could start from the almond and see how the almond gets addicted to like, uh, to or needs its fix, needs its subjective fix again and again. It just displaces the, it's never a, a solution. It's never It never finds a sort of a stable um, uh, um, subjective grounding in which it can just rest and chill out for a minute but it always needs to needs to push the what you call the semiotic frontier always needs to be in this sort of like it's because of course that language of colonialism or of that expansionism is quite on that semiotic register just as well even though we might think that the world is sort of maxed out in terms of or or relatively in in that spatial dimension but the semiotic is still a an ever open frontier and so um you reading the fix and the addiction from the perspective of the almond then also really made me think of the sort of the meeting the almond halfway in the, in the supermarket, probably, and um, how uh, one of the phrases that I really, one of the quotes that I really like that Lazzarato takes from Guattari is that he says, um, capitalism launches subjective models the way the automobile industry la- launches a new line of cars and and really this this notion of like you need to you need to perpetually launch this new uh, subjective model because neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it late capitalism is this perpetual crisis of subjectivity it always needs to be pushed forward it can never linger for too long and so i was thinking very much of like how there's also a certain enjoyment a type of a jouissance or something in in that in that in that addictive like hopping onto the next subjectivity. There's something exciting. There's some exciting lure that waits for us in the, in the supermarkets, whether it's just sort of confirming, uh, w- like we get our fix in a sense as well. When you, uh, you, you go, you rush into the supermarket and then you find the almonds in the, in the right dedicated corner for, for health foods or for sort of performative food, per, per, uh, performance foods or whatever. And then you kind of, subjectively reaffirm that you are an ambitious uh, uh, woman or whatever?
0: I mean, I personally think that the questions around um, sort of the attention economy or, you know, the way that our our minds and our eyeballs are the frontier for capitalist growth in their capacity to generate data that is valuable to marketers to sell us products, I mean, that that is the big beast of our time. I mean, I suppose there are many beasts now. They just keep multiplying. But one of the biggest feels like, how do we grapple with the fact that the frontiers for capitalist growth, which always require frontiers, um, are increasingly in the psychic space Um, I don't know how you would necessarily measure that over time, but it seems like, you know, if you were to look historically that these sort of spatial fixes in the way that Harvey talks about them, which are very geographic in nature in terms of sort of patterns of underdevelopment and, um, you know, geopolitical structures that enable growth in one place versus another... um, That now we're sort of reaching a point at which there's been so much growth and so much reshuffling that even though that same dynamic occurs in the sort of reshuffling of capital around the world, that the spatial infrastructures are starting to be built into technologies that now are really aimed at our psyche, at our understanding of ourselves, at our understanding of our world, of the way that we make meaning and the way that we digest or take in information that, that these are the, the real, um, attractive industries right now. Uh, you know, if you were to ask a venture capitalist where they're going to put their money, it's probably places, um, that deal with sort of datification, which is inherently about sort of, um, creating forms of, uh, of economic growth dependent upon our, behaviors um, as individuals. So maybe I'm getting a little bit far from agriculture here, but I think that's just kind of the bigger, (laughs) bigger question that we have to deal with. And so in my sort of narrow world and thinking about it in agriculture, I recognize that, I think that there is a tendency to really separate studies of agriculture from studies of food and food culture. That's also something that I've been trying to uh, reconcile in my work because um, food studies, which is much more aligned with cultural studies, takes a very different approach from people who look at political economy of, of agriculture. And I'm certainly not the first one to try and merge these worlds. It's tricky. Um and I think in in a small way I wanted to be able to better understand what is the relationship between production and consumption. Because we have a lot of sort of intuitive feelings that, you know, we eat things because we're choosing them, but is our agency really our own? And so that is part of what got me into this um, thinking about semiotics was, um, you know, what is the role of of individual agencies, kind of a structure agency question, but also, you know, what is the increasing role of, of marketing and advertising in our lives? And one of the things that I try and bring out in this story, and I think that agriculture is able to illustrate incredibly well, is that we can't think of these attention economy industries as separate from the state that we really have to think about the role of the state, um, which is so present in the world of these, um, marketing orders, which have a very specific kind of, uh, regulatory function. Um, but that there is, a, and of course, we're understanding this more and more and thinking about, you know, what are the ways in which regulators are seeking to engage with digital industries and, um, So many of the, you know, semiotic processes that have enabled industrial agricultural to grow have, are are inherently tied to state support in some way. Um, So that was another piece that I felt like um, I could feed into this conversation is that, you know, we can't necessarily sort of blame private industry as somehow distinct from the state
1: something that I found really curious about your work and something that you also mentioned before we started recording is this sort of like this struggle for, for, I guess, scholarship or for someone who's trying as a scholar to approach these themes. Right. So when you, um, when, when you, when you kind of taking out, when you're kind of sawing off the, the branch that you're sitting on in terms of the sort of the knowledge hierarchy of academia, and you're acknowledging that, uh, first of all, the kind of how, Certain parts of academia, oftentimes more the sort of explicitly scientific and food sciences, nutrition sciences or whatever, are, are very much just can be... Can be added on as components of these semiotic machines or whatever. Um, so there is no clear demarcation line of where the, the good knowledge making happens and where where the where the bad knowledge making happens. Of sort of like we just need more science to dispel the myths of marketing or something. Where I also found it quite funny that I, I read up on the EU ban of superfood, where they they literally say that that I mean it's not just about superfoods, but um, about me and. I have to say this as someone who's for for the most part of their uh, lives has lived in the EU I do appreciate that it isn't quite as much of an onslaught of like quite ambiguous claims about what what certain products do for you in, in, in European supermarkets but this idea that the EU somehow still represents maybe they don't I don't think they even believe in it themselves but this idea that you could sort of like with as they say quote, with clear accurate and based on scientific evidence sort of like that needs to be that needs to be the hallmark of like keeping off this this it's sort of the if if we think of like this as sort of the rising sea levels of the semiotic crisis or something we need to build these dams to like keep the uh, keep keep our keep our spheres safe but obviously it's uh, it's it, it seems quite a futile attempt to to just think that you could still police these boundaries and say that and so we Within that, I'm just wondering because that's something that I feel like will and I are very much trying to explore with this podcast as well is like what's the work left for thought? like how does thought work in this in this age? and obviously, you're doing some incredible work of showing how thought works how how semiotic uh, maybe thought is ah is, is not the right word, but how semiotic processes are so important in the very material. they're not just some sort of a facade behind which is the real the real mechanism but I just want to say, I found it really exciting that you're trying to go there and that you're trying to also with the paper with the GeoForum one that you're sort of ending on this ambiguous note that you're just making a very like I think it was the first paper that I read that had subtle in the title and that was actually subtle. Like there's so much use of the word subtle in academia where people aren't subtle and you were just making an actually subtle point and that's quite brave in academia, I find, because I think we're also losing our semiotic real estate or we're really fighting hard for our semiotic real estate in in, in academia and we're trying to get attached to like oh great there's a there's and the way that funding works and these types of things so
0: yeah that's a huge a huge kind of open pool to wade into and i suppose the thing that stands out to me um that i might offer is i've been very much influenced by feminist science scholars who always use material and semiotic together like Karen Barad and like Donna Haraway where it's, it's always material semiotic and and that's how the way I tried to approach it in the article and refusing to call it a semiotic fix is like it's a material semiotic fix which is a huge mouthful and is not great branding from and for academics competing with much savvier marketers uh, in the attention economy so I will certainly admit it fails in that regard we definitely need a better term um, But I think what's important is um, some of my newer work and I won't get like too far into other projects, but it deals with um, new technologies in food and agriculture, digitization, and some of the sort of infusion of Silicon Valley culture into food and agriculture or the sense that food and agriculture are sort of ripe for innovation in a variety of ways. And One of the things I notice is that when we talk a lot about digitization or um, potentially digital media or uh, algorithmic uh, elements of our world, we, I think, implicitly dematerialize them. Like We think of them as meaning-making objects more than material objects, but they're always both. Like you can't have an algorithm without a circuit board and the circuit board has specific characteristics that limit what it can do. And without getting too down a technical rabbit hole, I think I just always try and bring forward or I'm I'm seeking to, even though it's challenging and jargon heavy, um, like bring together the fact that meaning making apparatuses are always material. <laughs> Our capacity to communicate on Zoom is bouncing off of satellites and uh, you know all sorts of mined minerals of limited availability that enable the devices that we're using. Like all of this is very material, and it's all very semiotic, right? So it's it's always both, um, and I suppose that's not a very pretty way to talk about things. Um, but I find it important. Um, and it's funny in some circles, and this is maybe just speaks to the sort of self-segmentation of academia. I find that people are so focused on the semiotics that they forget that things are material and other people are so focused on the material that they forget that things are semiotic. So maybe it's just about having more, <laughs> more dialogue. But I think like with anything, maybe to tie it off on a a note that resonates more with the themes of the papers um, and the, the spatial fix in Harvey, I think, you know, these growth frontiers always eventually reach limits. Like it's, it's destruction that enables creation. So even just the almond industry will not be able to grow forever, whatever elements of the attention economy that we experience in our lifetimes will not grow forever. Everything will grow into the point in which it, you know, succumbs to its own frailty and has a moment of collapse that rearranges and reshuffles the deck. Um, so I think sometimes we can get sucked into the popular narratives of, um, you know, progress, things like that, and forgetting that, um, you know, all these things have an end, which is, uh, usually a, a point of, of, crisis and rupture and restructuring um that causes pain uh and and hardship for some people and not others um so while the story of the almond feels relatively innocent um all all of these things carry those same contradictions and propensity towards crisis as any other industry (laughs) so
1: I think I think pain, uh, rupture, and crisis is a very is a very appropriate hopeful point to to end it on. Um, um, no, this is this is terrific. I really really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm actually hoping that maybe at some point down the line we'll will uh, we'll make this work again.
0: I appreciate this conversation as well. It's uh, it's exciting to to hear that um, something I've written has resonated with you all, and and I'm happy to, to keep talking.
1: Maybe uh, one last question. So, how how many almonds per day would you would you recommend?
0: <laughs> well, if you're going for Obama's uh, recommendation, I think he was what at seven seven almonds per day. I will say um, something that you got
1: gray pretty quickly. I think so. I, I'm not <laughs> sure if that's. episode of the three ecologies thank you so much for listening and supporting us in the development of this project at this point we want to thank again our friend and contributor Gaetano Fiorin for the music you can find his music on soundcloud at Gaetano Fiorin thank you and stay tuned for more